Off the Bench is a podcast created by ASCLS that will discuss the scientific and not so scientific ideas in laboratory medicine. We are joined by members of ASCLS, fellow scientists, educators, and researchers, along with those interested in the profession. We share ideas and talk nerdy. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Off the Bench podcast. My name is Galena. I will be your host today. Um, and this is the last episode of 2022. So we figured that it would be great to have someone on to talk about community and community that we have created in this podcast, community that can belong to an organization such as ASCLS, or if you're part of any other organization uh, related to medical laboratory sciences or any personal interest that you may have. Community expands to where you work, your hospital, your clinic, wherever you are. And then of course, it trickles down to your neighborhood, your family, your friends, and the importance of all of those communities and how they can help us be resilient individuals. And so with us today, I am so excited uh, to have Elizabeth Power on with us. Um, so thank you, Elizabeth, for being on here. <laughs> and I tried, you know, I looked on your website and uh, tried to come up with a uh, a concise and beautiful introduction of, of who you are and what you do. And, and I think it's hard because your CV is so long. And the work that you do is so important um, that I figured I'd let you introduce yourself uh, and, and before we get started. You're so kind. And that does happen. I, I almost want to apologize for having such an extensive CV. And then I hear myself saying, yeah, but I'm an old lady. Of course, I've got a big CV. And then I think, nah, I've got a broad mind and I love I love doing diverse things. The, the bulk of what I do focuses on reducing the time and trauma and costs of healing for everybody involved. And a lot of stuff falls under that. A lot of change work, a lot of work on trauma, a lot of work on resilience. And so I spend my time working with organizations and individuals and agencies, helping them learn different skills and different knowledge associated with the things that will help them reduce the pain they experience on a day-to-day -day basis. Now that's not to whitewash hard stuff. It is to say that there are many things that we can learn to do that we may have missed along the way that make this journey easier. Community is one of them. I was just going to say, you know, your introduction pretty much right away leads us into the topic of conversation and that, that is community and why is community important to an individual? Well, that's, that's a great question, Galena. And by the way, thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored to be here today. If you go and look around and dig around in neurobiology, you'll find that the bottom line is that we are wired for relationships. We are, we are set as human beings. We are meant to be in relationship with each other, not to each other, but with each other. Um, and when you think about that, there's so many different things that come up with being in relationship with one another do I have the skills do I know how to pick the people I want to be in relationship with what if I am in a work setting and there are people that I desperately wish I didn't have to relate to uh, what about the people that I don't see whose lab work I handle every day where I learn more about them than they will ever know about me where I may be the first person to see the horrors that they might be about to face 
How do I take all that? What do I do with all that? How do I use community to help me in my work, to help me with the patients I see, to help me with the docs and the nurses and the other medical professionals I work with, to help me when I leave the door and walk outside and then must go into other communities like my neighborhood and my family and my friends. That's a wonderful explanation. And already I have so many follow-up questions because what I'm hearing is you describe already in the daily life of a laboratorian, all the communities that we have to consider and encounter. So the first one you mentioned is probably the hardest to connect to. And that is the community between me as a laboratorian and the patient and what their experience is. Um, you know, unlike a nurse and a doctor, um, they get to commune with the patient and often the family, and they get to see um, a multiple days worth or encounters worth of experience with that person. But um, me as a laboratorian, we don't get that privilege. Um, it's to a small degree, right? We we can go draw their blood and we can meet them at that end. Uh, so as somebody who is dealing with the blood work and a specimen, you know, we do get fantastic training in bioethics to continue to remind us that the work we do, this isn't just a tube, this is a patient experience. Um, but advice for how do you commune or create a community around patient care when us, even though we do so much of patient diagnosis, we're so far removed from the patient. Mm. Let me assure you, when the laboratorian is standing over me with a purple top getting ready to take my blood, we are right there in it together, sister. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, as as someone who who has had a, a fear of needles for a very long time, but I'm about over it now, about time. <laughs> my laboratorian has been my connection to healing or to more injury just with that one stick. Mm hmm. Her or his confidence, their kindness to me, their willingness to treat me as something besides just another vein of puncture, just another, just another specimen to collect, has always been the key differentiator. Mm -hmm. When I am, when I work with medical school students at Georgetown and other places, a lot of what we're what we're helping people recognize is you meet the person where they are. That genuine warm connection of, hey, how are you doing today? So glad you're here sorry, I've got to take this blood work or thanks for letting me do your blood work. It's better if you say thanks instead of sorry. Thanks for letting me do your blood work today. How can I make this? How can I help you be comfortable for this? Anything that recognizes that you may be dealing with someone who is phobic, someone who may have that great vasovagal response of passing out when they have a needle draw, when they get a, when they get a stick, something that lets you know who you're dealing with, that extra 30 seconds, extra minute, may make the difference between one stick and six. That's great advice. And, you know, it, it is tough. I, I was used to do uh, blood draws um, at the hospital and you, you have to start that work as early as four in the morning. That means you are walking in there and waking someone up. And there is very little chance that they're happy about that. Um, so that compassion is very important. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it's easy. I think the thing that's hardest for all of us in our different roles is when we are, when our stuff's up and we, maybe we had some jerk that tried to run us off the road. I'm sure they woke up and thought at 345, I'm going to be right there at 347. I'm going to run her off the road. No, no stuff happens. 
maybe the cat yacked, maybe the dog barfed. You know, you never know what might have happened that brings the laboratorian to work with stuff up. But the more laboratorian stuff is up, the more difficult it will be for the blood draw. Right. And, and so that moment of that delicious moment, and <laughs> oh, it can be so delicious, of stopping and gathering myself in and going, we can do this. We're a team. We can make this happen. This will be okay. That inner preparation, if you're going to talk to yourself, for heaven's sakes, make it count. <laughs> And that uh, be prepared for the countless times that you may be called a vampire. <laughs> yes, yes, you may be called a vampire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's the vampire. Yeah, yeah. The vampire who trained in some torture camp somewhere, right? Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. If you know, if I call you a vampire, it's usually because I'm anxious, mm -hmm. and that should be a clue that that the person you're dealing with probably is not feeling as good as they could, or is. They're trying to make light of a situation that is frightening to them. What might my blood tell you that I don't know? Mm -hmm. uh, would you say then that's a trauma response of the patient that's immediate is, is humor? Uh, I, I wouldn't, I, I would call it a fear response. I don't know that I would call it a trauma response. Now, if you have a patient who visibly cringes and moves away from you and is, and, and extends and withdraws their arm a couple of times, and I know you have that, that is a response that's driven by something traumatic. Remember, something that's traumatic is something that's big enough and overwhelming enough that the person thinks they might die, lose their mind, or be badly injured. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about trauma responses, we're talking about a response to something that is that overwhelming. Otherwise, it's fear, it's anxiety, it's disgusting, it's revolting. There are a lot of words between, oh, hey, here, here's my arm, have a good time, and mm -hmm. and drawing away and ending up in the corner, curled up under a blanket, screaming. Mm -hmm. The stronger the response, the more likely you're dealing with something in the past that the person is still struggling with. And sometimes it's as simple as, what can I do to make this easier for you? The other thing that comes up for me is how we could be partners with the other parts of the care team. That so would be great process. Yeah, that would be great. And again, you'll find that different partners in the care team have different perspectives about patient reactions. Mm -hmm. um, the nurse, the doc, the nurse, the CN, the people who are assisting you may, may be overwhelmed by the number of patients that are scheduled for that day. And they may be short and sharp, mm -hmm. or they may have one last nerve that this patient just got on. And so it's hard to figure out how do we get everybody on the same page? Mm -hmm. One of the things that we love to do when we do trauma-informed medical care training is we say to folks, okay, so you've got a patient that you've staffed that morning, you know she's coming in and you know she's a PIA and she comes in and you tell her she's going to have to have a, a pelvic and she grabs her clothes and she runs screaming out of the office and you watch everybody as, as she goes by them and what are they all thinking? What do you think they're thinking? And it's usually not very pretty. Mm -hmm. And as you go through that case and you learn, you know, maybe what if she's doing the best she can? That's a big question. What if she, what if all the other difficult patients really are doing the best that they can? That's my question that helps me jack up my empathy and recognize community when I'm about to shut somebody off or shut them down. Mm -hmm. What if she really is doing the best she can? And suddenly, well, I wonder why she'd grab her clothes and run out like that. 
Oh, as the front office manager might say, she's just cray-cray. If you lived in her neighborhood, you'd be cray-cray too. Not realizing that maybe the nurse manager lives in the same neighborhood as the other woman. <laughs> wow. So she just dismissed the other woman's distress to make herself feel better. And in turn, she threw off another relationship. So this becomes a dance. It, it reminds me of the book, The Four Agreements, where yes. uh, the first rule is be impeccable with your word. Yes. Yes. And uh, you may not realize the consequences your word towards someone else may have towards someone else. That's correct. Be impeccable with your word. And if you must change your word, do so deliberately and openly and with compassion. Mm-hmm. A lot of what we're talking about right now is actually expanding, right? We talked about uh, me as the laboratory, how can I keep my community or closeness connection to the patient? But we've, what we've also brought in here is the importance of feeling a sense of community with other yes. care team members. Yes. I think that's a, th that topic can't ta be talked about enough because nope. it is often that laboratory may find themselves in uh, disagreement with uh, nursing um, staff due to a, a maybe misunderstanding of how the laboratory works uh, or a lacking the awareness on our end, uh, you know, the critical condition that a patient is in, et cetera. So there will be a, a number of phone calls. Um, here's an example, a common one um, that we have to reject a specimen for testing because it has been hemolyzed. So it is, it's the specimen integrity has been um, lowered to a point where we do not feel safe to run the test for it will give a falsely elevated or decreased result. You know, we often make that phone call to nursing and it's really, it's really hard on there and to sometimes accept that because their patient is in critical condition and they need that result now. And then, um, you know, they'll say, just run it anyway. That's a really common one. Right. And, and, and do you have any advice for how to manage and build community instead of kind of creating this tension that sometimes can come from, no, we can't run it Yeah, but you need to run it. <laughs> We'd love to run it. We need to come get another specimen right quick. And we can have a, we can have an, have it analyzed for you within five minutes. Uh, and the reason I say that so, so with such certainty is I heard the urgency of we need that specimen now, just go on and run it. Well, you can try and explain to, and it's not the best time to explain to them why you can't run it. Integrity's compromised, can't run it. Let, let us come get another one right quick. I've got somebody on the way right now. Because I'll bet by the time you know that that specimen is hemolyzed and you can't use it, you can also have somebody hitting back to the floor to get another specimen while you're talking to the nurse. It may take more people. But if the person is, if the patient's in critical condition and needs it now, anything you can do to reduce the time between steps will make you a hero to that nurse. Mm -hmm. If the nurse continues that, it's important. You know, and again, this, this also gets into power dynamics. A lot of people look at the lab and think the lab is the bottom of the totem pole right above the CNAs and the housekeeping staff. <laughs> I'm sorry. I hope that's not true, but I fear it is. And so when you say, no, we can't do that, that's outside, you, know, you could say, I'm sorry, but in terms of our professional ethics and what we know works, we just can't do that because the, you know, the nurse just needs the results. Mm -hmm. 
And so how can you help the nurse get the results as fast as you can with minimum conversation? Sorry, we can't run it. I've got somebody on the way. They should be right outside the door now to collect that specimen, get it back to me so we can run it stat. It'll take us seven minutes. That will give you an accurate and verifiably accurate response because mm -hmm. you know that's what the nurse wants, but the nurse wants, to, wants that patient not to code on her. Of course. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. You, you're essentially calling and providing a solution at the same time as you're telling them the bad news. So yes, yes, yes. And instead of spending a lot of time telling them the bad news, you just need to say the specimen's compromised. You know, we can't use it. We're coming down to get another one right quick. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And that way, and here's the thing, when people are upset and that nurse is already in fight or flight mode, she's already agitated because she's got this patient that's in critical condition that she's working with. You can't reason with me if I'm dysregulated or with mm -hmm. her. So if she's already upset, don't try and reason with her. It's only going to make <laughs> my thought be bad. You know, help her re-regulate by getting her what she needs. Mm -hmm. Build your relationship with her. Go back to say, thanks so much for understanding. I really wanted to have that, that, that sample, that specimen analyzed for you and get you your results back. And it was so compromised. We couldn't have given you accurate results. And I know how important that is to you. Mm -hmm. And I know how important that is to you builds her up mm -hmm. and reduces, but does not eliminate the risk of her blowing up like a bottle rocket at you. But you can't build a relationship with them, with anybody until they're a little more regulated. And until you can build relationship with them, you can't reason with them. Mm -hmm. With children, we know that when you say, and I think it's probably true with adults, because I think we're four-year-olds hiding behind big people masks. <laughs> if I said, hey, I'm coming down with some snacks. Can I bring you one? If the nurse says yes, the chances are that it is, there, there are a lot of factors. Is she, at her, is she at the station? Does she have something coming up? Can she eat? Will she eat? When you can offer food to people and they are able to say, yeah, thanks or no, thanks, not right now. They are regulated enough and you've built enough relationship with them that you can begin to say, hey, I'm really sorry about not having that sample for you a while ago. It was compromised. We, we would have been giving you bad results, which would have negatively impacted patient care. And what you're describing right now is, you know, we talked about the the acute uh, event of, uh, hey, we can't draw your specimen. But what you're zooming out on is the importance of building that relationship and the community of trust uh, with laboratory as a partner to the care team. Again, hard to do because we are physically removed from the care team. Um, so that takes, takes a lot of work. Um, you know? I bet it would take two dozen muffins and a walk around. <laughs> uh, that uh, we actually had a pathologist on staff that would make sure that whenever it was his weekend to work, he would drop us off um, dozens of donuts uh, to let us know that he's here. He's available for us if they need it. If we need him. Yeah, there you go. Uh, you know, aside food, aside from food. Do you have any ideas of how we can um, integrate uh, maybe long-term better into the care team? What can lab do in order to be more visible and present and available to have that sense of community so that when an acute event like this happens, it has every party understands that we are here for the patient and that me saying I can't test the specimen isn't me being evil. <laughs> it is me saying 
this is not best work for patient care. Okay. I'm going to tell you the first thing is take, take out the, I can't test this. Anytime you put a pronoun in there, it automatically makes it personal. But you can say the specimen is compromised. We need a new one. We'll be right there. We're on our way to get it. The difference in the authority in those two statements, I can't do it, implies that you're incompetent or somehow you don't have the skill to test it. It's not about you. It's about the specimen. The specimen's not viable. Mm -hmm. So when you keep it focused on the specimen, specimen's not viable. Coming to get another one will be right there. We'll have this. We'll have this read for you within seven minutes of getting the specimen, getting getting this, getting it from from the patient. That's the first thing: is take I, me, my out of that conversation mm -hmm. and make it about the specimen. Otherwise, it's about what I can't do. Now, here's let me go backwards a little bit. What are the events? What are the meetings at which lab and care teams are automatically present with each other? A lot of the times it's uh, uh, events reconciling issues or problems that have happened in previous patient cases. So it's reactive instead of proactive. Mm -hmm. So does the lab have a pattern? Does the lab know the patterns of when demands are going to be high? Um, Friday, Saturday nights, does, you know, do you know what the patterns of high demand are? I think it, de it depends on the location. That's okay. for certain. Yeah. But the location has some sense of it. Yeah. Whether because, you're in a hospital setting or in a clinic setting, uh, yeah. Yeah, your workload changes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and who is the person that has the authority over the care team that you would interact with most often? All right. So I guess maybe easiest to do an example of yeah. uh, a clinic that uh, has an urgent care in it, and then you're the lab servicing urgent care. So again, the interaction is between the laboratory staff and uh, the urgent care staff. And so they have a manager um, and uh, similar, we have a supervisor or at the very least a team lead on site. Okay, perfect. Uh, mm-hmm. So you would start with the supervisor and the team lead, the two people who have the authority in the situation. And, and it depends, you know, it's, it's so, there's so many different configurations. If you're in a very small rural lab, it may just be you and the provider two doors down. If you're in a larger lab, it could be um, the kind of, of, of configuration you're talking about. But essentially you would figure out, first of all, who is the person who is responsible for this work? That tells you who your R is. Then you want to look at, okay, if I know who's responsible for this, then how can I, how can we, how can I help my supervisor or my team lead, my supervisor in the lab? Can we get our supervisor to let us talk with the people in the team? Can we give them an introductory video? Can we do something, some kind of meeting so that they know exactly what our processes look like mm -hmm. and what, what would make us send something back? Um, can you send out emails? They may or may not get read. Mm -hmm. But it's, you know, to send out, hey, helpful tip from your lab. If you know you've got a heavy load coming up, give us a heads up so we can staff up more appropriately to meet your needs better. So what, what I'm hearing is uh, to build a community between different care teams. Uh, you yes. start with communication, yes. communication. Yes. yes. You let them know we want to we want to make we want to be the best ever for you. And we want to make sure that everything we do supports your best level of care for this patient. Mm -hmm. And so we thought you might want to know what we do and how our work looks so that we can have a smoother interface, mm -hmm. but don't wait until the stuff hits the fan to do that. Cause then it's obviously a cleanup. Mm -hmm. 
reactive uh, versus proactive. That's yeah, for sure. exactly. Yeah. It's most of the times in medical settings, my experience so far is that everybody thinks they know what everybody else needs and nobody really has much of a clue. <laughs> and so if you were looking at this from a six Sigma process improvement perspective, you would identify who the customer is and who the supplier is at every, at every interaction. And you would do your best to figure out what needs the customer has of the suppliers mm -hmm. and what the suppliers need. Because sometimes there's a disconnect. And, and I, if, that's why I, I was bringing up the examples that I did. Uh, I did is because that disconnect kind of has a, has a pattern uh, and a lot of it, you know, comes back to specimen integrity and specimen collection and what our processes is, is, yeah. and, and it, in, in, in a perfect world, right. We would, we would say, um, you know, whenever, uh, you know, a new nurse comes through, we would have them, uh, do a shadowing time at the lab to really understand, mm -hmm. but you know, whether or not that anyone has capacity to do that, especially in this day and age, right. might be very, very limited. But you know, in the onboarding that that nurse goes through, you might be able, depending on how long it is, because most onboarding doesn't teach the right things at the right time we find. And when we begin to analyze it, you know, where, where is the three minute video that, that, that covers that in the onboarding? Because you'll have to cover it multiple times. So if, if there's a way, sometimes some, in some places when people become transparent about the causes of the errors, you know, the top, the top cause of, of loss of specimen integrity, you know, you, when you, when you share that out with your care teams without blaming, without shaming, without anything, and talk about the wins, you know, we're really grateful that we were able to, gratitude goes such a long way, we forget it so often. We're so, we're so grateful to this care team because they did a great job of all the specimens that we collected, only 2% had integrity issues. Uh, we were pleased to see that this is an, an increase in quality of 8%, you know, anything to build up what they're doing well and sh at the same time very quietly say show them what the causes of loss of integrity is what we all fear is being beaten up for our best effort speaking about being beat up um and coming back to community and how it can help us heal through the hard moments um so many uh moments in laboratory can be um very defeating or tough, right? We talk about how sometimes you are the first person to see that a person is about to get a cancer diagnosis. You are the first uh, person to make the phone call to um, the appropriate phone calls to initiate mass transfusion protocols because there's a patient that's bleeding out. So there's all sorts of traumatic daily events mm -hmm. um, that happen for the laboratory community you know, COVID being a huge one and um, loss of loss of uh, jobs um, and furloughs that came with that, et cetera. How does, or how does community help us get through those times? Okay, I'm going to go back to trust for just a second. Trust, whether it's positive or negative, is the outcome of repeatable, predictable, consistent interactions. So one of the first things in building community is becoming repeatable, consistent, and predictable with small positive actions. Um, and those small positive actions that we can measure and count and see how we're doing it, instilling as a habit, range from, hey, how are you? 
to saying thank you at least 10 times a day. Thank you to the patients. Thank you for letting me take your blood today. Thank you for being willing to let me wrestle with this. Thank you for showing up for me today. To say thank you and mean it greases an awful lot of skids and breaks down a lot of uh, barriers and begins to build trust as well as resilience. So the first thing is pick one or two things that you think will help you in building your community. Gratitude, um, shared lunches, monthly shared lunches, monthly shared meetings across all shifts. Something that shows that the people, if you are on a shift-based 24-7 operation, the people who work at night are as important as the people who work in day, even though their load's different. Community helps us during times of crisis because it lets us know that we're not alone. It lets us know that many hands hold us up. And in order to know that many hands hold you up, you have to build the web of relationships of the hands that are holding you up. And you do that through an investment of time. And by the way, that doesn't mean becoming everybody's best friend. It just means, hey, how you doing? What's going on in your life? You know, can I do anything to be supportive to you? Do you have enough support for that? It can be um, the small things, like if you see somebody's running short on a supply, say, hey, can I get that for you? If you've got a minute where you're not in the middle of something. It's not doing everybody else's work for them. It's sharing the load. It's also through well wishes. We had one organization I worked with where this one woman, she was an older woman about to retire. She began to send thank you cards to all the other laboratorians. You know, she, she had their, she had, she said, if she couldn't get their physical address, she'd put it on their, on their, on their desk. And she didn't do it to get them to say, oh, isn't this wonderful? She did it because she knew she had good things to say about people that she hadn't said. And most of the time when we find ourselves in a community of people who are dealing with crisis, we need the good words. We need the kind touch. Um, we need we need to be we need the help that we can give each other. I think Mash is a good example of that. If you've ever watched Mash, I, I hate to say it, but and it's it's an old old TV show where everyone helps each other out instead of getting caught up in the oh my God she does not pull her load. You know her she has never pulled her load and she's never going to pull her load. And I don't know why she's still here. She's there because somebody thought she was going to be a good employee and she hasn't proven herself to be poor enough to not need to be there. Mm -hmm. And you don't know what's going on in her or his world. So building community means understanding the nature of trust is repeatable, consistent, reliable, predictable actions. And finding three or four behaviors that are positive that you can do on a repeatable, predictable, reliable, consistent basis with other laboratorians so that when the stuff hits the fan, you've got a little bit of something in the well you can draw from. You're filling a well and wells get filled with gratitude and compassion and empathy and caring. And that gives you something in that well that you can call on when there's a crisis. It means having Kleenex with lanolin for people who need to cry. It means if people start to cry, say, go on girl, y'all can just go right on and cry it out. I'll be right here with you because most of us are embarrassed about feeling our feelings. And in a laboratory environment, it's probably frowned upon for a lot of reasons, just as it is in others, but giving people room to be. Say, hey, you look like you've had a rough one. You need, do you need to take a minute? I've got you covered. I hope 
that uh, whether already existing or as a result of listening to this podcast episode, um, that these kind of skills uh, and reminders are transferred to laboratories. Uh, unfortunately, that's not always the case in a lot of laboratories, not a lot, I guess. I don't have the statistics on that, but um, where an individual doesn't feel supported um, or loved, they feel you know ostracized, isolated, et cetera. And so in that sense, they don't have that community in their workplace um, available to them. You know, would you suggest um, that you know they find other communities outside of work to help them get over the daily trauma that they experience? Yeah, the daily othering is hard if you're a person of color, if you are a disenfranchised minority, if you're marginalized because maybe you're into body art, maybe you've had your eyeballs tattooed, maybe you look so different that people are uncomfortable around you. It, it is always a burden when you're different. Whether you have a physical disability, it doesn't make whatever your othering is because of. And sometimes, to be honest, we other ourselves because it is safer than being around people. If I keep you at a distance, I don't have to deal with you too much. Mm -hmm. And so this move towards community in, in, or collegiality says, how do we find the things that we have in common rather than the things that are different? The person who's got tats, who's got sleeves and, and a torso and had their eyeballs tattooed, they need the same things as the person whose skin is has no markings on it whatsoever. They need recognition. They need acceptance. They need affection. They, they need love. It might be a perfectly fine thing if you've gone through hate. And I'll tell you that my favorite book on this, and I think labs might find studying this useful, Matthew Kelly's Seven Levels of Communication. Here's the caveat. He wrote that book about people who are looking for love partners. But those seven levels apply in every relationship we have. And many times we go too fast in how we're building relationships, especially in a crisis. And then it turns out that the relationship can't hold up to what we did during the crisis. So learning how to ask this thing, hey, how are you doing? You're Galena, right? Your name is Galena. That sounds like it's a name from Europe, maybe. Learning how do we, how do we go down through these levels of intimacy so that we can test each other and see how it's going. Uh, you might say to me, Elizabeth, is that a family name? Were you named after the queen or is that a family? You know, looking for the, those, the questions. And, and Matthew Kelly does a good job in that book, even though it's about a book written for people looking for marriage partners, of talking about what the kinds of questions we ask at each level might be. So that we begin to see what is it like when we slow down? Because I guarantee you, if I drop to level seven in a conversation asking about your deepest needs, and I don't know anything about you from level six and up. You might give me an answer if you're, if I've got, if you're dying. But if you live through it, that might not have been the answer you really wanted me to have in the moment, you know, so mm -hmm. learning how to build relationships because we, we don't get much of that anymore these days. We don't get through. Okay. Hey, how are you doing? Fine. Thanks. How about you? Oh, I'm doing great. Yeah. Okay. So how's the weather where you are? The weather's been cold and slow. We did this in the beginning of this call. How's the weather? Well, it's cold. Yeah. I see my background. It's the desert. Yeah. I went out to the desert because I just needed something besides the dull blonde Minneapolis. Yeah. Well, I got to have something in my background that reflects where I want to be. So I've got mm -hmm. this green yard with the cat jumping. Mm -hmm. We kind of went through some of those level one things that are slight, superficial, cliches, mm -hmm. those kinds of things. And in this podcast, we've gone to level three, meaningful conversation, 
not terribly personal, not terribly impersonal, you know, uh, facts, not opinions. And, and th that's the kind of process we need to learn to exercise in the workplace as well. It's a structure that makes it easier to build community. In worst case scenario, if you're in a space that you don't feel a sense of community in your workplace, um, it, it seems to me that the next step would be to identify what other communities that yes. you have that can at least yes. for now fulfill those needs. Yes, absolutely. Two questions. One is, what is the need that your workplace community is supposed to fill? And number two, if it can't and you choose to still work there, what do you need instead to help you make that palatable? I work because I need the money to pay my bills and I like what I do. But if I'm working in an environment that's a hellhole, pardon my language, how am I going to make it through that? Well, I've got to have all my outside communities supporting me, my interests, um, computer, technology. What are the interests that you have that you can nurture so that they support you enough so that you've got something left over to take to the lab? It's all about relationships. Um, it, it's somewhat of a shameless self-promotion for, uh, why I think, uh, or organizations, uh, professional organizations exist too. I mean, they have a lot of goals, um, but they also provide, um, another community that's broader than what you're experiencing daily. Yes. You, you have someone you can ask questions of. Yes, absolutely. Galena. And I think professional associations are a big key in building community. Because as your professional association provides you with support for being a skilled, qualified individual, as well as a unique person in your setting, it makes it a little bit easier to build community because you have the professional association behind mm -hmm. you. That association can also sponsor lunch and learns and invite care teams to them. Mm -hmm. What is the reason? There's no reason a care team couldn't show up at a lunch and learn, either whether it's Zoom or in person. That association can also provide tchotchkes and things that might be helpful to people in different settings, stress balls, mm -hmm. um, notepads, things that make it easier for people to do their work. So there's a lot of ways in which a professional association can provide you with company. I have one group I work with who every, in fact, this afternoon at five o'clock, we'll be going to the bar. Going to the bar means we'll all be sitting on a Zoom call with whatever we want to drink in our hands. And we have 20 minutes where all we do is we complain about work. For 20 minutes, we give it space. We complain about work. And at the end of 20 minutes, we switch right over to another topic. We just did that yesterday. We're here in Minnesota. We hosted a scientific assembly at a brewery where we had a presentation, but we did it while uh, having a beer in our hand. And it was it was wonderful. That's so Minnesota, but really good. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's cold outside. We we have to work. Right. Beer beer is a good way to do it. Beer works. Um, yeah, it's so that you know that's the thing is if you deliberately give room to the both and, but be conscious that when you're working with care teams, the more you can leave out the personal pronouns, make it about the specimen, make it about the patient, and that takes practice talking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like that's a seminar of its own of uh, providing case examples and how would you respond to a phone call that says this? That'd be fun. That would be a lot of fun to do. You could you could do audios of that. Yeah, uh, it almost um, it, it seems to relate somewhat to the work that you do um, when you work with healthcare organizations, right? 
Yeah, it does. Because a lot of times in the training that we do in the trauma-informed academy and in trauma-informed medical care, the communication skills are the key. And the reason I say that with such confidence is that it's also known that when something is going on that overwhelms you, especially if you're a child and it happens, whether it makes you think you're going to die or lose your mind or be badly injured, all of your developmental stuff stops. You just stall out right there because your body is focused on surviving. You might be able to pass and look like you're doing okay, but your body and your brain is totally focused on survival and not on learning the fine art of communication, not on the finesse of learning how to negotiate a relationship with another child, but on survival. And that's one of the reasons that we talk about traumas being that profound. When you go into fight, flight, or freeze, the first thing you do is you freeze like a deer or a rabbit because it's like, what am I doing? And then if you can't run because you're a child, uh, or you can't fight because you're old and weak or you're a child. Pick any reason. It doesn't matter. The circumstances don't permit it. You're facing an adversary six times your size, whatever. Then you can only either go into dissociation or um, immobility. And when you see people who faint at blood draws, that vasovagal response is the, is the immobility piece. And for whatever reason, their brain is processing this as if it's a threat. Other people who just sit there and space out and you can tell that they're present. The lights are home, but nobody's on. <laughs> they're just not present, but they left their body behind. And so looking at how do we help people build communication skills that give them the ability to bypass some of the standard responses that we make instinctively and that help us key into the things that survivors of traumatic experiences need to be able to move beyond that. They can be our best allies in patient care as patients, and they can be our best allies in healthcare as providers. Once we get some of these knots in the middle, sorted out just a bit, and looking for the good things. I mean, looking at the patient who used to not let you do any blood draw at all without a real fuss and who comes in and is able to let you do it quietly, they deserve some cred for that, and so do you. Because you've both been able to work it out where they're, they've decided they're not going to die if it happens. Mm -hmm. it's, I don't know how to say it any more simply. Thank you for that. So if there's an organization out there or a leader out there that uh, would like to learn more about uh, the work that you do, um, the sessions that you host, what would be the best way to connect with you? Well, there are a couple of ways. The, the easiest way is through my email, and that's epower at elizabethpower.com. Our website is thetraumainformedacademy.com, thetraumainformedacademy.com. And that will take you to our homepage about the work we do in trauma-informed care. We're so excited because we have not only this research-based program that we teach on behalf of Georgetown University, and called Trauma-Informed Medical Care, which is the first evidence-based program for trauma-informed care training for medical practitioners. We've got great results. We also have the Trauma-Informed Academy, which is suitable for everybody. that helps people master the skills related to trauma-informed care, as well as improve their emotional intelligence. The higher your emotional intelligence, the easier it is to build community and maintain it. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for that. And we'll, we'll include uh, all the website links and, and uh, book references uh, in the description for this podcast for anyone who's interested. 
Um, Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us today. Again, this is our last podcast of the year and what a great way to end it and to talk about the importance of community, um, the mindfulness that needs to come from how we interact with our patients, um, our care team partners, and how we can use community to um, kind of heal ourselves and help us get through the tough times. I think, uh, I think that can't be stated enough. I think you're absolutely right. And thank you so much for having me here. Go out and say hey to somebody you hadn't said hey to before. Pay somebody a compliment. Expand mm -hmm. your community a little bit. And let's look forward to a 2023 of being closer to each other in ways that we never imagined with good outcomes. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Until next time, everyone, uh, have a happy uh, holiday, happy new year, and we'll see you in 2023.